Tonight, we are in Revelation 19. And for reasons that we're going to see as we go along, one of the most important passages in the Bible. You might wonder why, but we'll see that as we go along. Or maybe I should say dealing with one of the most important topics in the Bible. All right. Thank you, John, for leading us in a couple of really great songs. Thank you all for your prayers. I mentioned to everybody earlier, I'm going to have to kind of scoot out of here as soon as we get done because my wife's at a ladies retreat. She's got the good truck and I've got the old beater and it's the lights on aren't very good. So I need to try to scoot home as quick as I can get home. But uh, yeah, I may need to use that. We um, we do leave tomorrow afternoon. Uh, it'll take me five days to get to my destination in, in Nagaland. So it's a long, long, grueling journey, and we'll certainly be appreciating your prayers, and we'll be praying for all of you as well, and praying for John. I assume you're filling in all over three weeks, so I really appreciate John taking up the mantle and uh, filling in, and I know he does a great job. All right, so let's open to Revelation 19, and... Start with a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on the time that we're going to spend tonight. Now, Heavenly Father, as we have come together to receive blessing from you and to be led in your word by God the Holy Spirit to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to learn how we can be more like him and to be a blessing to those around us. So we pray that you'll accomplish all of the marvelous things that you have planned for us tonight. Pray that we will uh, just receive with gratitude and rejoicing the marvelous promises that you have for us. We have such a hope. Uh, we have such a future expectation. And Father, no matter how dark and difficult the times in which we live may be, we always ought to be looking beyond the horizon to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless our time together in your word to the honor and the glory of your Son and our Savior, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in Revelation 19, we have the return of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the judgment of unbelievers. And we're going to start with the rejoicing in heaven. You know that we have seen over and over again that during the time of the tribulation, when judgment is falling, there's going to be rejoicing in heaven and there's going to be weeping on earth. There is a day of judgment. This is why people reject the notion of the existence of God because they do not want to be accountable to anyone. And so if there's no God, if we all just evolve from an amoeba, then there's no final accounting that we're going to have to give. But of course, the scripture warns us that we must all give an account to God. And of course, the one thing that it brings ultimate victory in all of that is when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive the gift of eternal life, 
receive the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and know that we are a member of the family of God. So I'm going to start out here and just uh, read the first section. Uh, follow along with me, starting here in verse 1. After these things, and this is after the judgment of uh, Babylon, the great harlot, in chapter 17 and 18. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. So the judgment that's fallen on Babylon is both because of the wickedness of the system and all those who sold themselves into that system, and then, of course, because of the blood of the martyrs, which we read earlier, uh, the blood of all of the saints was found in her. Uh, essentially, as I mentioned last week, uh, religion is always the main instigator of persecution against the true faith. It doesn't matter what country you go into. Uh, the martyrs that were killed in Ecuador back in the 1950s, it was primitive religion rejecting the light of the gospel of Christ. And anywhere you go in the world today, there's tremendous persecution going on in Pakistan, even as we speak. There is persecution going on in India. There's persecution in so many countries. It's always instigated by religion. Uh, in Burma, we, we always heard, of course, that Buddhism was the totally peaceful religion, but the Buddhists have become extremely violent against the Christians because the proclamation of the gospel is a threat and a challenge to every other system. And so that hostility just keeps rising up. So verse 3, again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. One thing you see an awful lot of in heaven is a lot of singing and a lot of praise. So whenever we, I often think as we're singing together, uh, we are actually joining with uh, the uh, people in heaven, those who have died and gone ahead, uh, the angelic beings. Uh, I can't wait until we get there and hear the chorus. It's going to be out of this world. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where there was just a massive chorus of people singing together, but it's not even going to come close to what we'll experience when we get to heaven. Verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This is what all of history has been waiting for, for Christ to take the reins of government over the human race and to reign and rule. So you have there your notes. Um, 
I like, uh, uh, now I can't think of his name, Sarfati. Uh, Sarfati's book, in his book, he, call, he titles this chapter, The Return of the King. And of course, if you're familiar with all the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, movies or books, uh, you'll understand that parallel. So Christ is coming to earth and he's coming with his bride. But we need to keep in mind a little bit of order historically what's happening. After Christ was killed, buried, resurrected, the Holy Spirit came down and started a new age, what we refer to as the church age. So the coming of the Holy Spirit and many other things, uh, we've looked at the five works of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Um, these things didn't exist before. Uh, so there are many things that make the church age and make the provisions and the blessings that we have unlike what believers in any other age have ever had. Just take Ephesians 1.3. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, the storehouse in heaven, the doors have been flung open and it is available and accessible to all of us. But the day is coming when Christ will return for his bride. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with John 14.1 through 3. Jesus says to the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. A lot of people don't recognize that that is marriage proposal language. Everything that he's saying there is similar to the proposal language when a young man and a young woman were betrothed, they would have a ceremony of betrothal, and then the young man would say, I am going to prepare a place for you. And when I prepare that place, and the, he, he could not come and, re, uh, and claim his bride until the father gave his approval of the place that he had built. In other words, he couldn't run out and just build a shack and say, it's good enough for him. The father had to give his approval, and that's why Jesus said, again, this is wedding terminology, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the son, only the father. Why is that? Because in the marriage language terminology, the young man didn't know when the father would give his approval for him to go and get his bride. So all of this terminology is preparing for what we're seeing here with Christ and the bride returning to earth. And why is that? Because after what we speak of as the rapture of the church, down here on earth, the seven years of tribulation are taking place, but the wedding is taking place in heaven. And there has to be preparation for that. <clears throat> the preparation for that, you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is what we call the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ. At the bema seat of Christ, wood, hay, and straw is all burned up. Now, that doesn't represent sins. You're not going to get to heaven and have all your sins put up on a screen. Your sins were paid once and for all in Christ. 
They've been removed as far as the east from the west. They're buried as deep as the depths of the sea. And the, the promise of the new covenant, I will be their God. They will be my people and their sins and iniquities. I'll bring up every chance I get, right? No. Their sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. So then the obvious question people have is, what then is the wood, hay, and straw? It refers to the things we do. I refer to it as human good, the things we do in the energy of the flesh, apart from faith and apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit. So a lot of good things, what we call good, uh, those things have to be removed because they are not the gold, the silver, and the precious, precious stones that are acts of faith. In other words, if I teach a Bible class hoping that I'll impress you, if I teach a Bible class hoping to gain recognition or something like that, I'm doing that in the energy of the flesh. That's going to burn up at the judgment seat. And actually, while this intimidates a lot of people, it's actually a very wonderful thing that's going to happen because God is going to remove every taint from us. Remember that the prophet Isaiah said, all our righteous acts are what? As filthy rags. All of our righteousness is, in other words, the things we do that we think are good. You hear people all the time say, oh, but he's a good man. Surely he'll go to heaven. No, if all of that good is works of the flesh and produced by pride and done for recognition and praise, that's unacceptable to God. So the bride has to be purified from anything less than divine production, fruit of the spirit, eternal works of faith. And that's going to happen up here. And then... Revelation 19, where we are, is going to take place with the bride and Christ coming back to earth. So this is where we are historically. So the celebration continues, if you'll notice in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, the union takes place in heaven, but if you'll remember again, the wedding um, protocols of the Jewish people were that the betrothal took place, then the young man would come, the bride would run out to meet him, picture of the rapture, I will return and receive you to myself. And then they would go and they would begin a feast. Uh, usually it would last for seven days. And this was basically the wedding proper, although they had already made the commitment. They'd gone through the betrothal. The young man had come. He had claimed the bride. Then they come to the place where the feast is going to happen. This is what we're seeing in this particular passage of Scripture. Notice the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Well, how did she make herself ready? Naturally, if you're a bride, what are you going to do? You cleaned yourself up. Oh, uh, yeah, you, you want to look your best. Yeah. I was at one wedding where we waited over an hour for the bride to show up. She was over an hour late. <laughs> I was about ready to leave. <laughs> but at any rate, what was she doing? Well, she was making herself look the very best. So the wife has made herself ready. But the question is, how has she done that? Look at verse 8. 
To her it was granted. The word to grant here is the word that means to give by grace. And we need to remember that everything that we are able to do, permitted to do, enabled to do, is because of the grace of God. So the grace of God granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now this will take us into the book of James, which is what we're going to be studying in our Arizona conference. But James challenges us not to be hearers only, but to be doers also. And why is that? Because when we act in faith, speak in faith, pray in faith, all of those things that we do are actually adding to the glory of the bride throughout all eternity. You know, we might ask ourselves the question, what am I adding to the apparel of the bride, to the makeup of the bride, to the beautification of the bride? What am I actually doing to add to that? And that can include private things like prayer. Uh, it can include acts of mercy, uh, counseling other people, encouraging other people, praying with and for other people. It can involve things like teaching Bible class. It can involve things like giving, uh, witnessing to people on the street. It just, every one of us have things that we can do. There is always something we can do. And I love the idea in the songs about praying because prayer is something that's available to us 24 hours a day. We can pray while we're driving. We can pray while we're walking. We can pray when we wake up at night and there we are unable to sleep. Why not turn that into time for prayer? All of those things are adding up to the beauty of the bride. Then he said to me in verse 9, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, who are the ones who are called? People think, well, it's the bride. No, the bride doesn't get invited to her wedding. The invitations go to the friends. You remember how John the Baptist called himself the friend of the bridegroom? In other words, he said, I'm the best man. I'm not the bride. Because the bride is made up of believers during the church age. Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, are all invited to come. You might remember, and I'm not going to take the time to turn to it. Um, I don't remember if I put it in your notes. <clears throat> but you can jot it down in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Uh, you have Jesus telling a story. And so many times his stories were just so absolutely rich with meaning. And in the story, a king is giving a wedding for his son. And so what does the king do? He sends his servants out to invite people to come to the wedding. Uh, they're not the son and they're not the bride. They're the ones being invited. A picture of the nation of Israel. Servants go out, invite the people. They begin to make excuses. One has to go take care of business. One has a new team that he has to work out, whatever they are, they make all their excuses. The servants come back and tell the king, we went out and gave the invitation, no one wanted to come. Again, perfect picture of the majority of people in Israel. So what do they do? They send the servants out into the highways and the byways to get the lame and the halt and the blind and to bring them in so that the wedding feast 
is going to be filled. And of course, what it's a beautiful picture of is the fact that oftentimes those who are willing to humbly receive salvation by grace through faith are the ones who the world will consider the worst. The beaten, the broken, uh, the, the battered, uh, how willing are they to come to a wedding feast? Well, go to India and give an invitation and find out what happens. You'd be flooded. You wouldn't even, one of the things that we struggle with when we have a pastor's conference is we have more pastors coming than, you know, we can sometimes even take care of, which is, to me, a great problem to have. It's a wonderful thing to have. Um, so at the end of the story, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. That word chosen means elect. You know how you get to be elect? You answer the call. You respond to the invitation. So, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I'm so glad that John included this in the record. Verse 10. I fell at his feet to worship him. He's talking about the angel that's teaching him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What a full verse. So many things in this verse. Notice, first of all, the frailty of John. The frailty of even a man like the Apostle John falls at the feet of an angel to worship him. Now this tells us a couple of things. It tells us, number one, that John was a man just like us. You know, isn't it a danger that oftentimes people have a tendency to want to put the one teaching them on a pedestal? Raise them up higher than they should be raised. Look at them as someone greater than they should look at them. Uh, it's always a great danger. Uh, Oftentimes through my life and my experience, I would come into a situation where I had a pastor that was just teaching me and feeding me and just, I was learning so much and it just every Bible class was just a huge blessing and then God moves him somewhere else. And you're crushed because nobody can take his place, right? Nobody is gonna come along and do like he did. And the next pastor that came along wasn't like him and it took me a long time to really get into sitting at the feet of this other guy because I had given so much attention to the first pastor that led me to Christ. John is just like us. He has the same frailties. But stop and think, how glorious would an angel have to be to make you want to do this? They must be just so amazingly glorious that someone even with the depth and the maturity of John would want to fall down at his feet and worship. And then consider the fact that the angel says, I'm of your brethren. I'm a fellow servant, I'm of your brethren. Isn't it gonna be an astounding thing when we end up in eternity and we count as we gather here and we count one another brothers and sisters in Christ, we're gonna be counting angelic beings, Gabriel, Michael, untold, millions upon millions of angels, we're going to be counting them as brethren. And by the way, 
it's shocking to some Christians to realize we will be ranked above them. How astounding is that going to be? And so the angel tells John, worship God, obviously, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Do you ever stop and think that when you share Christ with someone, you're actually expressing the spirit of prophecy? And why is that? Because we have a story to tell. I have an old cowboy friend, and the guy was a great evangelist. He's in heaven now, and people would say, how can you just witness to everybody? And he said, it's simple. I just tell the story. He said, I have a story to tell. I just tell the story. However much of the story they're willing to listen to, I tell them the story. Christ came, born of a virgin, lived a holy life, crucified, buried, raised again. Whatever time he had, he would expand on and expound the story of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is the greatest story ever. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's going to become important here because the very next verse. What is the spirit of prophecy? Well, John says, I saw heaven opened. There are four times in Revelation that heaven's open. I'm not going to take time to look at them, but you have the reference in your notes. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. We've seen a white horse before, haven't we? Chapter 6. It was an imposter. It was a counterfeit. It was the Antichrist. It was Satan through his man trying to preempt the return of Christ so that people on the earth would think this is him. This is what the Bible promised. But it's not him. It's a deceiver. It's the Antichrist. Here heaven is open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. I want you to hold your place here. And you just got notes on the book of Jude. I'll be teaching both the book of Jude and First Peter in India. I want you to turn with me to the little book of Jude. Jude is such a critical book for us in our time. The book is summarized in chapter 4. Contend earnestly for the faith. We need to be willing to take a stand for the truth of God's Word. We need to be willing to enter into that spiritual conflict and stand our ground, proclaim our faith, trust in the Lord, give the gospel to as many as we have the opportunity because the faith is always under attack. But after going through examples of those that God judged and those who went astray all the way up to verse 12 and 13. He comes down to verse 14. And this is, I really hope you capture this, uh, what I want to show you. Verse 14 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying... Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. For what purpose? To execute judgment on all, to convict all 
who are ungodly among them of all of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You kind of get an idea that Jude's trying to make a point. Jude uses the word ungodly six times in this short little book. And ungodly means without God, having rejected God, opposed to God, all of those ideas are included here. You notice that he says that Enoch prophesied of these, and this links right up there to verse 4, because he said certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. How long ago? Well, about the time of Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Did you realize that this prophecy that we have recorded here in verse 14 and 15 is the earliest prophecy in the Bible with the exception of one? The prophecy that precedes it, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So in Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy in the Bible speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. This prophecy comes from the seventh generation after Adam. It's the next prophecy in the Bible. And why is that important? Well, because this prophecy and John's prophecy here in Revelation 19 are both focused on the same thing the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How important is the return of Christ to this earth in the mind of God? How much more emphasis could he have possibly put on it than to have had at the very beginning, at the very dawn of human history, and then here with John looking forward to the culmination of all things the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he come? He comes with 10,000 of his saints. By the way, that includes you and I because we just saw that those saints are what? The bride of Christ is coming with him. But here we're pictured as warriors. Here we're pictured as armies. We're going to see that again in just a few moments. There in Revelation 19 were pictured as the bride. Uh, you know, in the old Scandinavian uh, Viking culture, they had, um, they had what they called shield maidens. And these were women warriors, and they were ferocious. Well, if you were married to a shield maiden, you have not only your bride, but you have your warrior. And this is what Christ has made of us. A beloved bride and also a shield maiden, a warrior. Go back to Revelation 19 and we'll see what happens here. You'll notice uh, in your notes, and I've, I've passed over some of the judgment things, but you've got cross-references there. You might want to look particularly, uh, I'll just call your attention, at the bottom of page 69, uh, right there, the very last line, Psalm 89, 14. 
And then at the very top of page 70, Psalm 97, 2, look at those two passages because in both of those passages, they talk about the righteousness and the justice of God. The righteousness and the justice of God. And those are so important because in those passages, it tells us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Think about that for a minute. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What does that mean? Well, when you think of righteousness as the principle and justice as the function. So righteousness is the standard. God is righteous. God accepts only righteousness. As a matter of fact, God demands righteousness. Well, if that's all we had, we would be in a real pickle we would be in a world of hurt because we are not righteous. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that does good. There is none that is free from sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin and so death spread to all men. So that would leave us in an absolutely helpless, hopeless situation. But righteousness and justice, where do righteousness and justice meet together? Where do they kiss one of those passages talks about righteousness and justice kissing. Where does that happen? It happens at the cross. The righteousness of God demands a penalty for sin. And so the justice of God, the operational side of his holiness, provides Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. Then the righteousness demands of any who would come to God perfect righteousness. So justice goes to work to impute, to place to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ at the moment we believe in him. This is why the promise can be stated, he who believes in him is not condemned. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Jesus said, he who believes in me shall never perish. How are all of these things possible? Because righteousness and justice provide a way that we would never be able to provide on our own. Now, what happens to the person who has the invitation to enter the wedding feast, to come into the kingdom, to receive the gift of eternal life, and they continually shun it throughout their entire life? You know, when... We just read in Jude 14 and 15, and it talks about their ungodly acts and their ungodly deeds and their ungodly thoughts and their ungodly words. Why do you think Enoch was putting such an emphasis on that? Because when the unbeliever stands before the presence of God, they are going to be convicted by their own life, by their own words, by their own thoughts. Jesus said, by your own mouth, you will be condemned, or by your own mouth, you will be justified. So every time the gospel is presented to someone and they say, I don't believe that, every time you speak of God and they say, I don't think he exists, every time unbelievers are together, and you've all heard people say this, well, I'm going to hell because heaven won't have me. 
they're going to remember that. That's going to come back to them. I'm going to go to hell where all my friends are. We're going to party together. That's going to come back to them. And it's going to be a horrible self-conviction. And as I often tell people, God doesn't send people to hell. People will condemn themselves to hell. That's why it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God because when the weight of the evidence is presented at the great white throne judgment, there will be no escape. It will not be a matter of but, 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 I, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. The evidence is overwhelming. And every conscience will be totally convicted that God is righteous and God is just and his judgments are right. So we have heaven open, the Lord descends, called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and wages war. Righteousness, of course, offered eternal life. Eternal life was rejected. Notice that his eyes were a flame of fire. We've seen that earlier in the book of Revelation. On his head were many crowns. I think most of you know this, but there are two words for crowns. Stephanos, we get the name Stephen from this. Um, and you'll remember that the guy on the white horse in Revelation 6, Antichrist, he had a crown on his head. It's a Stephanos. That's a low-level crown. That's like the crown that the victor at an Olympic contest would get or uh, someone who excelled in combat in a war situation, they would receive uh, a crown, kind of like we would put uh, badges on someone's chest. They receive that. That's a Stephanos. The name, the word here is a diadem. And the diadem is the highest possible crown. And I want you to notice that the Lord Jesus comes and on his head were many crowns. How many? You say, well, how could one head hold many crowns? Well, a lot of times what they would do is they would actually make a crown and then they would have badges that they would attach around the crown and each one of those represented a crown. Kind of like if you uh, receive an award and then you add to that award, you might get a bar with it. Uh, you might get something added, but the basic medal or the basic... Uh, prize, if you want to call it that, that you were given remains the same. You just keep adding uh, bars. So many diadems, of course, speak of the many, many victories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we're going to see he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He had a name written. There are several names that are mentioned here. Uh, you have them listed there on page 71 toward the bottom. The first is faithful and true. Uh, he, we already saw that one in Revelation 3.14. Uh, he has an unknown name. Uh, we don't know what that name is because it's a name that is personal, private, probably between him and the Father. Then he's called the Word of God. He was called that, of course, in John chapter 1 and verse 1. And notice in verse 14, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. Well, earlier we saw the bride, now we see the armies. 
They're both the same. We are the ten thousands of ten thousands of saints that Enoch anticipated way back there in early human history. So the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That is going to be a ride that we're going to remember. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. This is a reference, of course, to the battle of Armageddon. You know, you and I use the word of God as a sword. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's speaking of a Roman short sword. The Roman short sword basically was uh, about as long as the distance from the elbow to the tip of the fingers. It's called the gladius in Latin. In Greek, it's called the machaira. It was very short. Uh, it was very easy to maneuver. Uh, the typical Roman soldier was about five foot three. If you were five foot six, you were very tall. Yet the Romans went out against the world, against barbarians that were six and a half feet tall, that were wielding massive swords, and they defeated them. And they defeated them because of their discipline, their training, their cohesion, their strategy, everything that was so amazing. But here, the Lord is going to be wielding a sword, and this sword is the Romphia. R-O-M-P-H-A-I-A. Romphia or Romphia, uh, however you choose to pronounce it, it's said both ways. But the Romphia was the Thracian broadsword. If you've seen uh, the movie Bra uh, Braveheart, uh, you remember that William Wallace had a huge sword. I've actually seen that sword. That sword's on display in the William Wallace Memorial in Scotland. And it's a big sword. It's like six feet tall. Um, you would have to be a real man to wield a sword like that. The sword that it's speaking of here is a sword that no one but Christ could wield. A broadsword. The Thracians uh, would wield these huge swords, and their basic strategy was that they would let the enemy approach within four or five feet of them, and they just take one great big swing and cut down two or three ranks of people because they were massive barbarian type people and uh, had these huge swords. Christ wielding the sword, of course, is the sword of his mouth, the sword of the word of God. Verse 16, he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And of course, we sing of this often. Uh, we use this in many, many songs, but it's going to become a reality. He is going to reign over all the kings of the earth. By the way, some of those kings that he is going to reign over and with are going to be you and I. We are going to reign with him forever and ever. That just absolutely, <clears throat> when I think of it, blows my mind. That he would exalt us to such a place. That in his reign, which is rightful for him, he would share it with us when we have no right to it at all. 
Why? Simply because we have trusted him. You know, God values faith more than anything else. There is nothing as valuable to God in us as faith. Do you know why? Number one, faith is a total expression of humility. Faith says, I have nothing. I am nothing. I can do nothing. All I can do is receive. And I am going to receive what is offered through Jesus Christ. But secondly, faith is not only an acknowledgement of our weakness, frailty, and inadequacy. It's the ultimate expression of humility, but it's also the ultimate expression of praise. Why does God value faith so much? Because it honors Him. It gives Him all the glory. It gives Him all the credit. It gives Him all the praise. It acknowledges that He and He alone is the author of all of the good things that we have in life. It declares that His Word is true. It declares that even as we were singing the songs earlier, when we don't know, when we don't understand, when we can't explain, we still believe. That is huge. Because while people here on earth may mock it, I can tell you that in the heavenly realms, the angels stand in awe and amazement. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 and verse 12 that the angels are craning their necks to observe what's going on down here on earth and see these puny, frail little creatures who simply by faith and faith alone are shaking the realms of darkness and the realm of the devil. I think that's just so amazing and, and so exciting to anticipate. So King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice. This is uh, calling, of course, the birds uh, to the great slaughter feast. Saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, the flesh of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Uh, while I was in um, Pennsylvania, I told all the kids, you know, on the Titanic, there were rich people, there were poor people, there were cultured people, there were uncultured people. But when that ship went down, there were only two kinds of people, saved and lost. Here we have all kinds of people, but unfortunately, they're all lost. And why does it put such an emphasis on this feast of the birds? Because it's the ultimate insult. Just to tell you how weird things can get, we were in China, and in China, the uh, priests there have what they call a sky burial. Uh, we actually saw, we didn't see the actual thing happening, but we saw the after effects. And basically, if you get a sky burial by these priests, what they'll do is they'll take you, after you die, take you out into the mountains. They cut you up in 109 pieces. Has to be very precise. They're, they're very specific about it. 
and then they lay those 109 pieces around for the vultures, and oh. we, we saw the vultures, and the vultures are like three and a half feet tall, just sitting on the ground. Mm -hmm. They're huge. We were driving along a cliff, and a vulture, we're in a Chinese-made twin cab truck, and a vulture just came up on the rising wind over the lip of that canyon that we were driving by, and his wingspan was as long as the truck. So the sky burial is the vultures eat you and carry you off into the sky, and in their religion, that's the ultimate. But in the ancient world, to be left on the battlefield and to be, to be the feed of the buzzards, that was like the ultimate insult, the ultimate shame. So this is what we're seeing here. Notice in verse 19, I saw the beast, here's Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse. Remember in Revelation 16, it said they gathered them to a place that is called in the Hebrew Har Megiddo. We say Armageddon. It's literally Har Megiddo. What is Har Megiddo? Well, Megiddo is a plain, the valley of Esdralon. Har means hill. And right on the edge of Megiddo is the hill, the Har, Har Megiddo. I've stood on that hill. Uh, Napoleon stood on that hill and said this would make the greatest battlefield in the world because it's just flat. Well, that's going to be the last great battlefield of the world because that's where Antichrist and his armies are going to be. They gather together and make war against him that sat on the horse and notice against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Never forget that the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. It was never created for man. Men only go there when they choose to follow the devil, to believe his deception, and of course, to share his ultimate judgment. So they're cast alive into the lake burning with brimstone, and we're going to see when we wrap Revelation up that a thousand years later, the devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire, and guess who's still there? Where the beast and the false prophet are. A thousand years. Think of it this way. A thousand years is like a second and every second is like an eternity. The lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever. Verse 21 says, The rest were killed with a sword that proceeded from the mouth of him that sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. God's righteousness provides righteousness. He offers his righteousness to all who will receive it. As we read in Romans 4, Abraham believed God 
and it was imputed to him for righteousness. That's how much God values faith. But what happens when a holy God says to a wicked sinner, simply believe as a little child would believe. Believe with simple childlike faith and I'll give you righteousness and I'll give you eternal life. And that human being says, no, I'm going to rely on my good. I'm going to rely on my righteousness. I'm going to stand on my own merit. Then what happens? The righteousness of God demands judgment. And that judgment is equivalent to the crime that was committed. You know, the crime that you commit can have varying degrees. If you do something, let's say you steal something from a friend, pretty bad. Then you steal something from your mayor, that's worse, or the chief of police. Then you steal something from the governor. The depth of the crime and the punishment for the crime is going up. What happens when you defy the holy God of heaven? Only when we think about it in those terms can we really understand why the judgment has to be so severe. Because that defiance and that rebellion and that rejection has been in the face of Almighty God. So the judgment is complete. We're going to see new heavens and a new earth when I get back. And uh, I'm going to have to run because it's getting dark outside and I'm going to have to get home. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace. Your word uplifts, encourages, exhorts, challenges, convicts. So many things go on in our hearts and souls as we listen to your word. Father, I just pray that uh, these notes will not be uh, put together in vain, but that uh, each and every one here will sit down, go through them, look up the cross references. So many things we don't have time to cover in a very brief class like we've had tonight. And we just pray that we'll continue to grow in grace. We live in wicked and evil times. We live in a world that is spiraling out of control, uh, really under the control of the evil one. Uh, we need to stand firm and stand fast for the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just pray for each and every one here tonight that we will do that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.